I'm Lisa Levenstein in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm Nan Enstead in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to College Land. Nan, you probably remember that for his entire presidency, Trump tried to end DACA, the Obama-era policy that allowed limited protections from deportation to undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. And this summer, a federal judge ruled DACA unlawful. And though the program's continuing for now, it's not accepting new applications. People took to the streets in D.C. today to protest a ruling by a federal judge in Texas to halt the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA, which provides limited protections to about 650,000 people. Now is the time to act. We've been sounding the alarm for so many years. We need to make sure that we get citizenship for all of us because we are not free until all of us are free. Ooh, these past few years have been a roller coaster. The Trump administration had canceled the program, but the Supreme Court in 2020 upheld DACA, a huge victory for immigration advocates. And the Biden administration has vowed to strengthen DACA. But IAEI, the ruling last summer, stands for now while the federal government prepares an appeal. And it's not just deportation protections at stake. DACA recipients can work legally, which is pretty important when the tuition bills start showing up, especially because they can't get any federal assistance. And all this is not to mention the many undocumented students who don't have any protections or ways to work legally at all. It's got to be super anxiety-provoking for students. You know, I think this issue is only going to get more critical. Nan, we know that more and more students of color are enrolling in higher education. I mean, you and I have really seen this happen. You've seen it happen. (laughs) And I've seen it happen, you know, but not from here, (laughs) from a distance. You know, I'm at uh, UW-Madison, which is the flagship campus in Wisconsin, But the changes in this are really happening out at the branch campuses at places like UW-Milwaukee or UW-Oshkosh. I keep hearing things around here like, oh, well, Madison's not that diverse or Wisconsin's not that diverse. But that's bullshit because, you know, if you look at UW-Oshkosh, you've got this formerly hyper-segregated city that has been totally transformed by a combination of active recruitment and grassroots student activism. So, you know, I'm sorry to rant, but it's just insane that we can't make more of an effort here in Madison. Totally. I mean, here at UNC Greensboro, we've always had a lot of students of color. It was really diverse when I got here, and it's even more diverse now. I mean, we've actually reached some sort of statistical tipping point so that the university now promotes itself as a minority-serving institution, which is a really great thing. But You know, I've been in so many rooms with white administrators in suits talking about what the metrics tell us about this new group of students. What really seems to be missing from the conversation is any real sense of what it feels like to be one of those students. So, Nan, I reached out to someone who knows. I had many students who were fully undocumented and didn't have DACA status, but even my DACA students were super stressed out. That's Shirley Lairo. I am an assistant professor in the criminal justice program at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, which is part of the City University of New York University system. Shirley has been working at Manhattan Community College since 2014. It's a school with a large percentage of Latinx, Black, and Asian students, most of them women, and of course, some of them undocumented. 
And she's doing research about undocumented students' experiences on campus that asks really different questions than the ones the administrators at my university are posing. And those questions build on her own experiences as both a student and a faculty member. I was raised in a very religious household, and I was always taught that college was time, money, and energy that you can spend serving God. So growing up, we were discouraged from wanting to go to school beyond the K-12 system. So I had no plans on going to college. When I was younger, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. Plus, I was raised in the New York City housing projects during the crack epidemic. So I saw a lot. And I just remember thinking too many of us are behind bars and not enough of us representing those folks. So right after high school, I started working for an attorney. I was a secretary. 18 years of age, didn't even know how to turn on a computer. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, head first, that's how I learned to swim. So I had no plans on going to college. I got married very young and then I got divorced very young. And then that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college. I started to really dig what I was studying, which was criminology. And then I was talking to one of my professors and I said, you know, I think I'd be really good at teaching. And he was like, well, why don't you try adjuncting? You know, teach a class see if you like it. I started teaching and that's when I knew this is what I want to do. I want to teach. And I said, what do I have to do to teach? And I said, I need my PhD or I'll get my PhD. (laughs) And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what was entailed. You know, academia really isn't designed for people who come from my background, look like me. It was a struggle and it continues to be one because it's not easy being a woman of color in academia. Can you talk a little bit about the way that the process of even getting a PhD is structured and the barriers that are built into that process? One of the barriers is financial. So for me, I worked while I was an undergrad. I worked when I was pursuing my um, BA and MA and I worked as a PhD student. So like I would teach in the mornings and then I would go to work and then I would go take classes at night. And PhD programs are not designed for people to work. You know, you are expected to give up your job and that's hard, right? Um, but the, the reality is that if you come from a background from mine, you probably are not going to be able to live as a student and live, right? So there's also this assumption that the college experience is singular, mainly the one that people went through themselves and just having a positive college experience entails much more than you need to be on campus. And I I will say that it is true that belonging and membership to a college community does involve being able to participate in activities, but that doesn't mean that they can't be available to night students or students who are participating online. What you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of, (laughs) I see this all the time, People who teach in higher education have an image of what higher education should be based on their own experiences. Yes. And if we believe in the college for all, right, which was a very 70s, 80s thing, college for all, if we believe that, then it has to be college for all, right? And it has to be redesigning pedagogy, redesigning campus activities so that it can truly be college for all because sometimes you have to make modifications so that that population of people that you're speaking to can actually participate. So we said college for all, but we didn't change college itself at all. (laughs) Exactly. You know, even in conversations in department faculty meetings, 
Um, I know how it is to be a person who works and then goes to school at night and the struggle that that takes, right? And whereas one professor is like, this student is always coming late, you know, they need to be more motivated. I see someone who, despite the fact that they're late, they're there. And that's motivation enough. It seems like part of what you're saying is that the very same students who some might consider unmotivated because they can't devote 24 hours a day to their school, they might be running late sometimes, that what you see in engaging with them is a tremendous motivation. Exactly. So when I went to school, I was on a mission. And I think that's how they see it, right? That they're on a mission and their mission is to get this degree that allows them the social mobility that they need. And I I understand that because I was on that same mission. It's particularly incredible when you think about the fact that maybe only 2% of all PhDs are Latinas. Yes. That's amazingly low. Very. And can you talk about what you see as your role in nurturing the next generation? So many students who are matriculated into college, uh, a large number are of you know, Latinx, Hispanic origin. And the majority of those would be women. Considering that and seeing how many few of us are actually being the instructors and educators that they can look at and say, wow, you know, she can do it, I can do it. And, and that's how I see my role. And I want, you know, all of my students, regardless of their ethnic background, but in particular my Latinas, because I'm a Latina, <laughs> is uh, I want them to see that you can be what you can see. So I'm a professor, I'm a PhD, I'm also Puerto Rican, and I grew up in the projects. You can do it too, right? It's, it's attainable, you know, but it's hard. Can you talk a little bit about the borough of Manhattan Community College? Yes. So I love where I work. I am able to reach so many students. You have single parents. You have a wide array of people who really want to move upward in that social ladder and, you know, achieve that CUNY American dream. You know, community colleges get a bad rap. They're considered to be 13th grade. I remember when I got hired, a bunch of us were at a conference and there was a book publisher talking to a couple of us. And the publisher was like, you know, where are you working? I was like, oh, you know, Borough of Manhattan Community College. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like, oh, community college. All right. <laughs> Nan, hearing Shirley's perspective, it really shook me because a few years ago, honestly, I was that professor. I remember being so frustrated with the students in my night class who were late, the ones who fell asleep, or just like were kind of just sitting there and I felt like they weren't bringing enough energy to our discussions. Now I'm looking back and thinking about the fact that that same semester I was teaching an online class and that class attracted a lot of students who had full-time jobs. And I was so struck by the fact that if I held office hours in the evenings, those students would come and meet with me as late as 8.30 or 9. And somehow I was able to see the motivation of the students showing up in office hours, but I just didn't see it with the students who were showing up and sitting through a three-hour night class. Yeah, Lisa. I mean, I think all of us struggle with the occasional student who falls asleep in class, right? I mean... (laughs) Sometimes students fall asleep in my discussion classes, not just the lectures. You know, it's hard. So like my story about this is a few years ago, I was teaching this huge first year history class, all lecture, 
over 100 people in the room. And the entire new members of the football team enrolled. They all enrolled as a group. And they're instructed by the football team to sit in the front row of their classes. So every day, these huge guys would file in, flop down in these tiny lecture hall seats, and fall asleep every day. So I'm thinking, you know, these guys just don't care about academics. You know, they're football players. And one day I like went up to them as they were rousing themselves and said, hey, you guys, can I talk to you? And they're like, uh-oh. You know, and I'm like, guys, is there anything I can do to help you be engaged in this class? And one of them said, hey, you know, no, we appreciate how hard you try, but we get up at 6 a.m. and then we run three miles and then we go lift for an hour and then we go eat a big breakfast and then we come to your class. And I'm like, so like, there's no physical way that you're going to stay awake in my class. And they're like, yeah, that's right. So then we just had to laugh about it. So, I mean, it's so amazing to think about, like you ask the one question and you get all that information. It just completely transforms how you understand what's happening in front of you, right? It's just such a good example of how much, what, like what a difference it makes if we just understand the lives of our students, even just like a little bit. And that, I mean, when you think about it, having faculty who really understand students' experiences, I mean, it really helps us have a better and more successful university. Yeah. And Shirley's experience with that book publisher is just like, you know, everything that is wrong with how we view community colleges. And I'm thinking, you know, if research is only conducted at Harvard and Yale and places like UW-Madison, we're going to miss out on a lot of good work. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Lisa, I bet there's a lot of people at UW-Madison that don't even know people at community colleges do research. Right, exactly. I mean, Shirley's first study came out of questions she was asking about the academic theories and public rhetoric that suggested that immigration causes, quote, social disorganization and that social disorganization causes crime. Like this was the assumption in all of her classes. She started like questioning that and found other literatures and data that showed basically the exact opposite. But then, like, she did the next step, too, right? She took the time to go out and talk with people in the communities who were being written about. There's a lot of literature, both in criminal justice and criminology and outside, that show that, in fact, immigrant communities experience lower rates of crime, that immigration actually lowers crime rates wherever immigration influxes appear, and that just historically, immigrants commit lower crime than the native form. So if it's not immigration, Maybe it's immigration control. Maybe it's the mechanisms that the state uses to control immigration actually cause the, the social disorganization. How? Well, because if your community is the target of policies that vilify you and want to get rid of you, then you're going to be less civically engaged. And so when I went about my studies and my research and I interviewed people and I asked them about how they felt about being deported or, you know, their feelings about being a person who is um, susceptible to deportation, I expected to hear, you know, I don't go out at night or I don't go out as often or I'm careful when I drive and I make sure I don't drink. I don't use um, public services. I don't talk to the police. I, I try to stay under the radar. And I did hear a lot of that, but I heard much more often, to be honest, language that was symptomatic of trauma 
you know, people were talking about being depressed and it was stress and anxiety. A couple of people talked about suicide. And that's when I started to think about, we have a public health crisis on our hands because my studies were done not during the Trump era, but the Obama era, right? So it really doesn't matter who's president. If you have immigration enforcement policies that are vindictive and just punitive, it doesn't matter who's president, the person is going to feel it. It just got worse through the Trump administration. And that's when I decided to go about the belonging study. So after the election, you had all these campuses write letters of support to their students because, you know, there was a lot of threat of ICE coming onto campuses. And so I just wanted to see whether or not the university was walking the walk because they were talking the talk, right? In this study that you did, it seems like what you're saying is that after Trump got elected, a lot of universities sent out messages to their students, um, particularly students who were immigrants, undocumented, saying, you're safe with us, we care about you, affirming that they did have a place in the university. And so you wanted to look and see what an undocumented student's experience was on a college campus. And not just undocumented, any student who is not a citizen, because the fact is, if you're not a citizen, you can be deported. If you are a green card holder, a legal permanent resident or lawful permanent resident, however they phrase it by the state, um, you can still get deported. I mean, you can get deported based on a misdemeanor offense if you are a green card holder. So there is deportability, even if you are here with a green card. I had people tell me, like I would give a talk on my research and I would have people approach me to say, I'm a, I'm a citizen, you know, I got my citizenship and I, I'm still nervous. When I cross the border, I'm, I, I always think, oh my God, are they going to take my citizenship away? So it wasn't just undocumented students. So there was a lot of liminality in terms of how people were feeling and with their status. I believe that belonging is important, right? To feel that you're part of something is beneficial. And there's research to show that a belonging contributes to healthier mental states. It helps self-esteem. It helps integration. So I really believe that that was a good place to look at in terms of trying to gauge a student's experience in the university and in a student's sense of security and certainty in some very uncertain times. We all try to belong to something. I remember this time, we were so afraid that ICE would come onto campus and round up students. The fact that students had enrolled in DACA, you know, it meant that government had their names and addresses. If DACA wasn't being respected, would the promise of protection actually be the thing that put students at risk? You know, I was teaching that same huge history class to the football players, and I would just lie in bed at night like 4 a.m. and plan out what I would do <laughs> if ICE agents burst into my classroom to apprehend one of my students. Yeah, several of the faculty members in my program actually went through a training put on by a Latinx community organization, and it taught them how to protect people if ICE came onto campus. That was also when students, staff, and faculty around the country started organizing to protect students from deportation. Remember, they called for campuses to declare themselves sanctuary campuses, which meant that they vowed not to cooperate with ICE. And some campuses actually did that. Yeah, the chancellor at UW-Madison said that she did not have the legal authority to keep ICE off campus, but that the administration would not assist or cooperate with ICE, sort of threaded the needle. Shirley's work 
really came out of this moment. And she decided to hone in on that question of belonging. So she asked students, do you feel like you belong at CUNY? And she asked about the clubs they were a part of and the college services that they used. And she asked about their immigration status and if they were commuter students. Our first conversation got cut short due to tech problems, but I called her again and I asked her in more detail about her research. You know, long story short, what we found was that there was a, uh, an association between students feeling a sense of belonging and their involvement with school activities. That was one. There was a connection between the level of belonging that a student felt and their immigration status. Students with less secure immigration status, those who are fully undocumented, find that being Kuyinu students play a more important role in their identity than for those whose immigration status is more secure. When I actually conducted the study and contextually what was happening, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment going on. And there was a lot of insecurity with respect to DACA and even just anyone who was undocumented status. So the promises that were being made by school officials and administrators, professors, those with uh, less secure immigration status felt uh, more of an investment in those promises. What kind of promises are we talking about? Well, for instance, you know, CUNY saying, we're going to protect you, but they couldn't say, and they weren't saying, we're not going to allow ICE on campus. But they stopped just short of that because uh, they couldn't stop ICE from coming on campus if they had warrants or whatever the case may be in that sense. But the fact that they were like, we're behind you, we support you. For instance, on our college campus, we had immigration clinics. We had attorneys coming in to help um, students with um, immigration questions that they had. If you had an undocumented student and ICE came in, would those people providing those students actually be able to prevent the student from being deported? Well, I mean, I think that with the amount of critical mass that we had, we could have, right? We could have just formed a, a human chain and just barred them from doing it. But that didn't mean that we weren't going to get arrested for it or, you know, legally speaking, they still could come in. But the fact is, right, coming forward and saying, we have your back, then at that point, you know, the students were like, then have our back, right? If CUNY is going to talk the talk, then walk the walk. You know, and that's what they were relying on, that that's what they were you know, going to hold the administrators accountable to. In many instances, CUNY did a good job in having and supporting students. There were lapses. Of course, there were um, some professors who were vocal about their opposition to immigrants. But, you know, the students are so awesome. Uh, there were protests at the campus of Brooklyn College against, you know, one particular professor who said really offensive things about immigrant students. So, you know, the students were standing up for themselves. Right. So you're saying, so one of your findings is that students who were undocumented felt less sense, a less of a sense of belonging, right? But then also I'm wondering about this activism, maybe creating a sense of belonging, right? If the students start mm -hmm. to get energized and they're part of something and they're part of a movement and a strike or a protest and how that might actually flip the script a little bit. You know, it definitely moved them to be active 
but there's something about having to fight for it. So I'm not sure if it contributed more to their sense of belonging if you have to fight for it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like, um, you know, they definitely made their space and they claimed their space and they claimed their voices. Um, but the fact that they had to do it in that manner also speaks to the fact that they had to fight for that space. You don't feel a sense of belonging to an institution in which you're fighting to even get recognition, in which you have to mount a protest because professors are saying racist mm-hmm. things about you. Exactly. You know, so, so having a fight for it almost puts a, like a, a little sour note to it. I'll read you two quotes from students that speak to this, right? So one says, I'm an active member of the community in my institution. However, at times I do feel as a non-citizen that my opportunities are limited. And another one wrote, I identify myself with a group of non-citizens because I don't have any help for tuition. All is pay out of my pocket while being undocumented. The only work I could perform is construction and I barely get enough money to eat, pay bills and attend college. It makes me feel like because of my status, I can't focus on the real aspect of attending college, learning. I become depressed thinking about the society around me. How is it making a barrier to young people like me? The language of being depressed, the language of, you know, where this person stands in the larger society, you know, all of that takes a toll, you know, and it's not just money, right? It's the fact that the lack of financial help because of their status plays a huge role in not just the sense of belonging, but also in their own self-esteem. Because if you are part of the same institution, but you don't qualify for the same anything as any other student, there's going to be a sense of isolation and being left out. It's almost like a sense of second-class citizenship. Yes. It seems like it's like. Absolutely. And it, and it's something that they feel regardless. Right. And then when it's um, perpetuated in the institution by their lack of being able to qualify for certain things, you know, that just cements it for them. On the one hand, CUNY stands out among many institutions in the nation for the fact that it provides as much support as it does for undocumented students. So to hear this is just so striking to me that the kind of flip side, that access is only one tiny piece of this puzzle, right? You can have access to the institution, but if you don't have true access to all parts of the institution, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel on the outside of it. Yeah. And like theoretical access is one thing, but in reality, the lack of access is what happens. And seeing it from the point of view, like a public university like CUNY, uh, just an undocumented status does not preclude you from being able to attend college ever, right? It precludes you from um, obtaining some financial assistance But if you're able to pay your tuition, then you can attend and you can get your degree. But what happens is, you know, I've encountered students who've told me that at the registrar's office, they were told, well, you can't, no, you can't register because you're not documented, right? Because you don't have a social security number. Not being able to fully integrate as a student in the institution, when those realities set in, 
then your identity right starts to form as well as like you know some students don't feel that they are a real college student right that's part of their identity half student or part student or a student adjacent or a student with an asterisk you know all of those um, play a role and then there's the frustration and the depression that comes in as a result during a time where you know most of these students are emerging adults and then some of them are parents you know some of them are you know household providers you know all of these different roles that our students occupy simultaneously while they attend college maybe we shouldn't just we shouldn't use the term non-traditional student anymore that maybe all students are non-traditional that there is an assumption that a college student is one that goes during the daytime and anyone else who doesn't go to school during those hours or anyone else who isn't from the ages of 18 or 23 or anyone else who isn't you know doesn't um meet that picture that historical picture for a college student is that that's just that's just never been the case anyway and just acknowledging that and working to meet the needs of all of our students would make the student experience so much better Lisa, this is interesting to me because the university itself actively creates the idea of the traditional student, but then excludes people who are actually also students, students who are parents, students who work two or more jobs, and many students who are living under the threat of deportation. You know, this makes almost everyone feel like they're not the right kind of student. Exactly. And, you know, these threats to undocumented students are not going away. DACA's in limbo. Biden has shown a remarkable lack of compassion for immigrants and border crossers and people seeking asylum. So while our universities might continue to shout diversity, equity, inclusion as loud as they can, they're still basically completely silent on how to create a culture that truly reflects that and a culture that reflects both the diversity of the U.S. and the hardships that people face here. You know, one of the reasons I was so interested in talking to Shirley is that I'm married to someone who for years was undocumented. Now, we're both white and Canadian, and we speak English, and we're financially secure. So, like, this is basically as privileged as an undocumented person can be. But I was born in the U.S. and have dual citizenship, and he didn't. So even with this mountain of privilege, we lied to get him into the country. And we'd travel separately across the border not to raise suspicion. And on every job application, he'd look for that box that asked for your social security number and realize he wasn't going to qualify. He also lived in constant fear that he'd get in an accident or get seriously hurt. Our students are out there living these fears as well, and many that are so much worse. If we can't figure out how to create an environment for these students to feel safe enough to live and learn on our campuses, then we're not fulfilling our promises to them. College Land is produced by Craig Ely and Jade Isiri Ramos. 
Danielle Ferrari is our researcher and publicist. Our theme music is by Josh Wilson. And the show is hosted by me, Nan Anstead, along with Lisa Levenstein. A special thanks to North Carolina Humanities and the Robert F. and Jean E. Holt Center for Science and Technology Studies for their support. We're really excited about this season of College Land. If you are too, we'd be really grateful if you'd take a second, leave us a little review, give us some stars, tell a friend about the show. See you next time in College Land.